Three weeks ago when we returned to Romans, I stated that my hope and my aim over the next four sermons covering Romans 3:21 to 31 was that you would know how a sinner is made right with God and that you would know that you personally have been made right with God. Because there is no more important, nor more urgent, nor more eternal question than this. Nothing, no marriage crisis, no financial trouble, no job anxiety, no family turmoil, nothing compares in significance to the question of how and whether you are acceptable in God's sight. To that end, we have been taking our time carefully unpacking what I consider to be the Mount Everest of the Bible, the clearest and most glorious explanation of the gospel found anywhere in Scripture. In this passage, we find that Paul outlines four essential components of God's answer to that most urgent, important, and eternal of questions. The first week we focused upon verses 21 and 22 and the concept of imputation. We found that if a sinner is to be accepted by God, he must be accepted on the basis of a righteousness that is not his own, a righteousness that is outside of himself, a righteousness that is perfect and pristine, a righteousness that is not his righteousness but is God's righteousness gifted or imputed to him. This righteousness Paul declared in verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we noted in that first week that this righteousness of God, which justifies, is historical. It has now, in the coming of Christ, been manifested through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It is legal. It is the law-keeping righteousness of Christ that is manifested to us apart from the law. It is biblical. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And it is universal. It is given to all who believe. The only way a sinner may stand in the sight of a holy God is clothed in the pristine and perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to him by faith alone. The second week we explored the concept of justification. From verses 23 and 24. And we found that we are hopeless sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, the source of our acceptance cannot come from within us. It must come from God on the basis of free and sovereign and unmerited grace. Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
The solution to our fall from God's glory is the free justification of God in which we are declared, not made, declared righteous in His sight. This justification finds its source in God's sovereign mercy. That is, it is by grace alone. It finds its grounds in Christ's work of redemption. It is in Christ alone. And it finds its means in a faith which receives, rests in, relies upon Christ's redeeming work. That is, it is through faith alone. We are all of us among those in verse 23 who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our greatest need, therefore, is to be found in verse 24, to press in to verse 24, to find out what it means to be freely justified by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then last week, we examined the concept of propitiation, from verses 25 and 26. These are all just aspects of the gospel as revealed in this passage. Propitiation is the heart of Christ's redeeming work. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The mercy which God has showed to sinners created a cosmic crisis because it created the appearance that God does not care about his glory because he did not punish those who despised and trampled upon it by their sin. A righteous and holy God cannot ignore sin. He cannot acquit sinners without violating his own justice and his own righteousness. Yet, God was unwilling to give sinners over to the punishment with which their sins deserve. So what was God to do? Well, the resolution to this cosmic crisis is propitiation. Jesus died to propitiate God's wrath against our sin. God put Christ forward as our substitute, bearing our sins in our place, and then he publicly and violently slaughtered him in the sight of all creation. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness and his just hatred of sin. In the death of Christ, God showed himself righteous and holy in his abhorrence of evil. Yet once God's wrath was satisfied, God then flung open the floodgates of his mercy towards sinners. So through the propitiatory death of Christ, God showed himself just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These three components, imputation, verses 21 and 22, justification, verses 23 and 24, and propitiation, verses 25 and 26, are indispensable components of the biblical gospel. You don't have to understand these components perfectly in order to be saved. 
but you do have to understand something of these three concepts. And you cannot deny any of them, or else you have a different gospel altogether. But there remains one component missing from our exploration of the biblical gospel, and that is its appropriation. How does a sinner appropriate or receive or benefit from the work of God in imputation, justification, and propitiation? Because we know, if we've read the Bible, that not everyone benefits from the saving work of Christ. The Bible does not teach universalism in which everyone, without exception, is saved. So the question is, what is the difference between those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness and those who remain clothed in their filthy rags of sin? What is the difference between those who are justified before God and those who are condemned? What is the difference between those for whom the wrath of God has been propitiated and those upon whom God's wrath remains? What makes the difference between the first group and the second? According to Paul in today's passage, there are only two possible answers to that question. Either the difference lies in our works, or the difference lies in our faith. Either we are justified on the basis of our works, or we are justified through faith on the basis of the works of Christ. Those are the only two options, says Paul in verses 27 to 31. There is no third alternative where we can take faith and works and sort of merge them together. Now, Paul has already hinted at what the correct answer is. In verses 21 to 26, for instance, verse 22, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. End of verse 26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What we're talking about this morning is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, what the Reformers termed justification sola fide. Next to the question of what is our final authority in matters of faith and practice, what they called sola scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation, the question of what is the means of justification, sola fide, the material principle of the Reformation, was the battleground of the 16th century. The question that they fought over was, on what basis does God justify sinners? The answer to that question given by the Catholic Church was and is that God's justifying grace is received initially through baptism and maintained and restored, if lost, through sacramental penance confessing to the priest, receiving absolution, and doing the works of satisfaction that he prescribes. 
If the state of justification in Catholicism is not properly and carefully maintained, then on the day of judgment, the sinner will be condemned. Now, it's important to be fair and to note that the Catholic Church believes in grace and they insist upon the necessity of faith. They would say that apart from God's grace, there would be no justification for sinners, period. And they would say that apart from faith, confession and penance are just meaningless, empty gestures devoid of of any saving efficacy. But in the final analysis, when on the day of judgment God looks upon the sinner, his judicial declaration is based upon, in the Catholic viewpoint, whether or not that sinner has maintained the justifying grace which they received in baptism. In the end, then, it is a justification by faith and works. But Paul's going to argue that a justification by grace and faith and works really amounts to nothing more than a justification by works. Because those works in the final analysis are the deciding factor in whether or not a person is justified in the sight of God. So the reformers, beginning with Martin Luther, recognized this problem, having personally experienced the agonizing fear and doubt which inevitably attends to such a view of justification. If my standing before God is based in whole or in part upon my working, my goodness, my merit, then the inevitable question that arises is, have I worked enough in order to be acceptable in God's sight? Luther, followed by the other reformers, went back to Scripture, went back to texts like this one and found that the quote-unquote gospel, which they had learned from the Catholic Church, was another gospel altogether. They found that the very heresy which they were battling in the 16th century, Paul had battled in the 1st century. Only instead of baptism and works of penance, it was circumcision and works of the law that certain teachers in the early church insisted were the necessary means of justification. So in other words, though the form of the works had changed from the 1st century to the 16th century, the heresy was the same. It said that a sinner is justified before God on the basis of grace, faith, and works. In Paul's strenuous refutation of this heresy in his letters to the Romans and, and Galatians, the reformers rediscovered the biblical gospel. Thus the Reformation began and its rallying cry became justification, sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And we are the heirs of that rediscovery of the biblical gospel. And it comes in large manner from this very text. Now, we're going to spend several weeks in Romans 4, which is essentially Paul's exposition of Romans 3, 27 to 31, and the doctrine of justification, sola fide. 
So what I want to do this morning is to build sort of a, a bridge between Paul's exposition of the gospel in Romans 3 to Paul's exposition of justification sola fide in Romans 4. We've covered the first three components of the gospel already, imputation, justification, and propitiation. Now it's time to add the fourth essential component of the gospel, namely its appropriation. So here's the point that I want you to get this morning. I want you to listen very closely. If you would be right with God, if you would receive the benefits of redemption in Christ, sins forgiven, credited with the righteousness of Jesus, listen, you must not work, but only believe. If you would be justified before God, receiving the forgiveness of sins and the gift of righteousness and the assurance of everlasting life, you must not work, but only believe. In this passage, Paul defends the doctrine of justification sola fide in three ways. I'm going to walk you through those three defenses And then we're going to end by pointing out three implications for your own life and for the life of this church. All right, so defense number one that Paul marshals up in defense of his gospel of justification by faith alone is that justification, sola fide, is absolutely essential to the destruction of human boasting and the promotion of the glory of God. All other views of justification aid human boasting and distract from the glory of God. This is Paul's point in verses 27 and 28, where he asks, Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So in verse 27, Paul's drawing an inference from what he's just said in verses 21 to 26. If it is true, as Paul has insinuated, that sinners are justified freely apart from the law by a righteousness received by faith, then what becomes of human boasting? Paul says it is absolutely, utterly, and totally excluded. How? Why? Why does Paul's gospel exclude all boasting? Because the gospel is based upon a law or a principle, would probably be a better translation there, of faith, not the law or principle of works. He then explains in verse 28 what he meant in verse 27. For we hold, we maintain, we believe steadfastly that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now I want you to notice what Paul has done in these two verses. First, he's made sure that we haven't misunderstood him thus far. He's made sure we haven't, we haven't missed what Paul's trying to say in verses 21 to 26. 
If we have understood Paul to mean that a sinner is justified before God entirely on the basis of Christ's righteousness and his propitiatory death received or relied upon by faith alone, then we have understood him aright. Because that's exactly what he meant. Paul's gospel sets the works of Christ received by faith and our own works achieved by works in a completely antithetical relationship to one another. And Paul says, either a man will be justified by faith alone in the works of Christ, or he will be justified on the basis of his own works. And Paul has already made clear that justification by works is an exercise in futility. Look down at verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Therefore, if any of us is to be justified in the sight of God, it must be by faith alone, totally apart from works of any kind. Secondly, Paul has asserted that this manner of justifying sinners totally excludes human boasting. Why does this matter? It matters greatly to God. God is zealous for his own glory, and he is jealous that he not share that glory with any other. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, and there is, or I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. But if our justification were based in whole or in part upon our own works, then we would, by definition, have something in which to boast. We could stand in heaven and truthfully declare. I am here because I, and we could fill in the blank. Such a thought is abhorrent to the God who says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other. Therefore, God justifies sinners in such a way as to totally exclude their boasting in anyone but him. That's where we get these wonderful gospel passages in the New Testament like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It was not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God saves sinners in such a way that they'll have no grounds for boasting. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 30. And because of him, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why did God do it this way? Why did God justify you and give you Christ as your wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption completely apart from your own doing? Why did he do it that way? 
so that if anyone was going to boast in anything, they would be boasting in him. If any works of any kind has anything to do with our justification in any way, then we have something in which to boast, and Paul's argument falls apart. The only way for God to maintain his absolute claim on the glory of redemption is for our works to have absolutely nothing to do with it. Stated another way, sola fide is absolutely essential to soli deo gloria. That's Paul's first argument. Paul's second argument is that justification by faith alone is essential because of God's unity. It is a necessary deduction from the unity of God's being. This is verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Okay? So now Paul's going to argue from the foundational doctrine of Judaism, namely monotheism, that there is one God, that God is one. This was the basic confession of the Jewish faith. It was repeated by every Orthodox Jew daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. The prophet Isaiah clearly declared the same. I am the Lord, Isaiah 45.5. I am the Lord and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The Jews knew that. They knew that God is one. They knew that there was no God beside him. But, Paul wonders, have they considered the implications of that truth for justification? It means that Yahweh, the one true and living God, is no tribal or regional deity who exerts power only over a particular people at a particular place. In other words, he's not just the God of Israel if he is one. He is the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentiles. He is Lord of all people in all places, if God is one. Further, the oneness of God means that there cannot be two different means of being reconciled to him. If sinners are justified by works of the law, then only those who are under the law can be justified, and God becomes the God of the Jews only. Paul rejects that possibility. He's already proven that by works of the law, no one will be justified in the sight of God. Therefore, if men are to be justified, it must be by the working of God, not of man. And since God is one, this working must be the same for Jews as well as for Gentiles. And that way is by faith alone. Now, it is strange, admittedly, that Paul uses two different prepositions in verse 30. I've gotten this question a couple of times Um, from, from some of you. Why does Paul say in verse 30, God is one who will justify the circumcised 
by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Well, I think the NIV, shockingly, translates this verse a little bit better than the NASB or the ESV. It says this, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. I think that's right. I think that's the right way to translate this. It's not just through faith, it's through that same faith because there's a definite article there. Now, numerous attempts have been made throughout history to try to explain why Paul uses by faith with respect to the circumcised and through that same faith or through faith for the uncircumcised. But the truth is there is probably no theological significance to the change and it's probably just a variance in style. Paul was a good writer. And like all good writers, he switches up his prepositions, he switches up his nouns, he uses synonyms, and I think that's what he's doing here. To prove that, I would point you to Galatians 2.16 and other places where Paul actually uses both prepositions, by faith and through faith, interchangeably. Galatians 2.16, he actually uses them in the exact same verse. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. You see what he does there? He uses them interchangeably with no difference in meaning. By faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So don't let that trip you up. There's no difference between Paul saying that God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. What he means is that God God justifies the Jews by faith and he justifies the Gentiles through that same faith. That is, in the same way, by faith alone. Paul's argument then is that because there is only one God, he must be the God of all, both Jews and and Gentiles. And because God is one, the way of justification must be the same for all. That is, through faith alone. Finally, in verse 31, Paul argues for justification by faith alone by stating that it is actually the only way to uphold the law. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. See, the gospel of Justification by faith alone has always had its opponents, whether the Jews of the first century or the Catholic Church of the 16th century and even today. One of the objections that the gospel always encounters is that the gospel nullifies or overthrows the law of God. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem in Acts 21, The charges against him were that that he was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. You see, when Paul said the kind of things that he said in Romans 3.20, that no one will be justified in God's sight through the works of the law, and in Romans 3.28, that we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law, then he opens himself up to the very serious charge of antinomianism, that is, of being against the law. 
He will decisively answer this charge in chapters 6 to 8 of Romans. Here, he simply affirms that that's not the case. He simply affirms that justification by faith alone is actually the only way to uphold the law of God. And I see that as true in two very important ways. Number one, justification by faith alone is the only way to take seriously the law's penalty for sin. The law says unequivocally that the penalty for sin is death. And the Jews thought that because God had instituted and provided the sacrificial system, that then full atonement could be made through the offerings of bulls and goats. But they did not understand what the author of Hebrews understood. In Hebrews 10, 1-4, that since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in these same sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system of the law was provisional, not permanent. It was meant to serve for the people as a reminder of the gravity of sin and as a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the final atonement to come when God would himself provide the lamb for the sacrifice. But when the Jews made it the reality instead of the shadow, they were failing to take seriously the wages of sin, and the demands of the law. The glory of God and the evil of sin is too great to be canceled out by the blood of animals. True and final atonement can only be made through the blood of the Son of God. Therefore, Paul says, who really takes seriously the law's demands? The Jews with their endless animal sacrifices? Or Paul, with his gospel of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ received by faith alone. But secondly, justification by faith alone is the only way to take seriously the law's command to love. Do you remember when Jesus was asked by the scribe which was the greatest commandment of the law? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. The whole law is summarized in the commandment to love God supremely and to love others selflessly. But because of our inward corruption and the disease of sin which infects us all, not one of us is able to fulfill the commands of love. We don't, we can't, we won't love God. We may love a God of our own making, and some of you do, but we do not love the true and living God supremely above all else. And we can't, we don't, we won't love others selflessly. We may love others for what they can do for us or how they can make us feel, 
But we do not love them as fellow bearers of the image of God and fellow heirs of the grace of life. But as Paul will explain beginning in chapter 6, his gospel of justification by faith alone does not merely come with full pardon for sin, it comes with power. The power of the indwelling spirit who raises us to new life, who gives us a new heart, who produces within us new affections. Theologically speaking, justification never occurs apart from sanctification, which leads inevitably, or let me say that again, justification never occurs apart from regeneration, which leads inevitably and always to sanctification. That's the right way. In other words, no one is justified, forgiven of their sin, acquitted in the judgment of God, without also being born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if they are born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit their life is going to be changing in the direction of love. Love for God and love for neighbors. If they do not love neighbor and if they do not love God in increasing intensity, then they have not been justified and they have not been regenerated. The three go together in Paul's gospel. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, 3, and 4, For what God has done, or for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If Christ died to condemn sin in his own flesh, on your behalf, then he also has given you the Holy Spirit in order that by walking in the Spirit, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you. This means that the power of the indwelling Spirit works in such an effectual way that those who are saved actually possess the ability to begin keeping the law. That is loving God supremely and loving others selflessly. So Paul goes on to say in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law, and love is the fruit of the Spirit who indwells those and only those who are justified by faith alone. So who really fulfills the law? The Jews, with their outward adherence to religious rituals, or Paul, and Christians who burn with spirit-wrought love for God and for others. In other words, you cannot begin to keep the law until you are justified by faith alone. So there you have it. That is Paul's defense of the doctrine of justification, sola fide, by faith alone. Now what are the implications of this doctrine for ourselves 
and for our church. There are many, but I want to highlight just three as we close this morning. First, we at First Baptist Nixa must zealously guard the gospel against any admixture of faith and works. Our gospel, including the way we present the gospel, must exclude all human boasting. This means we need to carefully guard against mixing any kind of works in with faith as the grounds of our justification. And this is, in case you've been wondering, one of my fundamental concerns with the altar call, which has been so prominent in evangelical churches in the past 200 years. Besides the fact that the altar call has zero biblical warrant and was unheard of for the first 1,800 years of church history, I am tremendously concerned that particularly in a setting in which the gospel is not carefully and thoroughly explained, it gives the impression that the way to be justified before God is by raising a hand, walking an aisle, and praying a prayer. It gives the impression that something in addition to faith needs to be done in order to show God and others that you really mean business. But faith is a movement of the heart, not a movement of the body. Attaching a movement of the body to a movement of the heart smells suspiciously to me like attaching a work to faith. Subtly, ever so subtly, a message is proclaimed visually, if not verbally, that the way to be saved is to put yourself through this artificial program we've established of hand-raising, aisle-walking, and prayer-praying, rather than merely resting your hope and your confidence in the work of Christ on your behalf. And you can hear the disastrous results of this evangelistic system if you listen carefully to the testimonies of many of those who have been converted from within it. One of the reasons I reacted many, many years ago against this system and abandoned the altar call as an evangelistic technique was because, quite simply, I got tired of listening to people relate their testimonies in the non-biblical terms of walking an aisle and going down to the altar rather than in the biblical language of repenting of sin and trusting in Christ alone. Their testimonies focused upon what they had done for Christ rather than what Christ had done for them. It was a gateway to justification by works all over again. And as soon as you add any work of any kind to the gospel, I guarantee you our sinful, prideful hearts will attach saving merit to that work. And faith will be made null and void. So whether at home or on the mission field, whenever we present the gospel, we must do so in a way that totally excludes human boasting. We must zealously guard the sola fide nature of justification by attaching no work to faith. Second, implication on a more personal level. If you struggle with assurance of your justification, 
Allow me to suggest to you that you have, whether in whole or in part, based your justification upon your own works. In years of pastoral counseling, I've seen this happen in at least three different ways. I want you to see if one of these ways might mirror your own experience. First, some are basing their justification upon their own savability. This is what you're doing if you say something like, I just don't know if God can save someone like me. What lies behind that kind of despair is a theology that bases justification upon the sinners not being too sinful for God to save them. In other words, a sinner remains savable as long as he or she doesn't cross some arbitrary line which puts them beyond the reach of God's justifying grace. But you see what that does? That brings works and merit in the back door and does not actually exclude boasting. Because those who are saved are saved, at least in part, because they didn't screw up too badly before they were saved. No. Go read Romans 1, 18-320 again. God doesn't save the savable. God saves sinners. A second way that I see this happening is when people base their justification upon their sanctification. This is the Catholic view, which says that once one receives initial justification, whether in Catholicism through baptism or in evangelicalism through faith, that state of justification must be maintained by minding your P's and Q's, making careful use of the sacraments when you screw up. Now, of course, there can be no, no degree of assurance and confidence in that kind of system. How could there be? But Protestants have their own version of this. I call it the clean slate view of salvation. It says something like this. Jesus died to give you a clean slate, but you have to keep it clean through confessing your sins and ongoing repentance which is a confusion of categories. There can be no lasting or confidence in that theology because as you grow deeper in your faith and your knowledge of Christ and his word, you will more deeply understand your sin and the darkness of your own heart and you will begin to realize that there's no way you can ever keep your slate fully clean until you stand glorified before Jesus. Jesus did not die to give you a clean slate. Jesus died to fully atone for your sins past, present, and future and to clothe you in his perfect righteousness by which you may stand blameless before his throne of grace. So if you base your justification upon your sanctification, keeping things together, then you're undermining the assurance and the confidence that comes with justification by faith alone. Finally, some are turning faith into a work by asking questions like, do I believe enough? Have I repented enough? Have I felt enough conviction? Do I feel enough forgiveness? The problem is the word enough does not belong with faith. They're not in the same categories. Faith allows no degrees. Faith rests, faith trusts, 
Faith ceases striving and, and trying and lets Christ save. So don't turn faith into a work by worrying if you've got enough of it. Rest your soul upon Christ and his finished work. Get your eyes off of yourself and place them on him and keep doing it day by day until you know that you're justified in his sight. Third implication. You cannot be holy until you are justified. And you cannot be justified except by faith alone. Justification by faith alone is the straight gate that opens up the narrow way. Until you are justified by faith alone, you do not possess the power for holiness. You may be able to make yourself outwardly moral. You may be able to make yourself religious, but you cannot become holy. You cannot obey God out of love until the Holy Spirit resides within you, and the Holy Spirit will not reside within you unless or until you are justified by faith alone. You cannot render to God the obedience of faith until you are justified. And as Paul will maintain in Romans 14.23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the Christian life does not begin with moral reformation. It doesn't begin with, with turning over a new leaf or making a new start or beginning some new religious habits or starting to go to church or letting go of destructive ways. It starts with stopping. The Christian life starts with stopping. It starts with ceasing your labors and your efforts to try to earn or buy God's favor. It starts with a sweet surrender to the sovereign grace of Christ and, and a resting in his saving work. It starts with believing that Christ died for your sins, even yours. Boy, that's a daring confidence, isn't it? Believing that Christ died for your sins, and not for some of them, for all of them and then banking your hope on that glorious truth. It starts with standing before God, submitting to him as he clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. So if you are here this morning and you know you don't belong to Jesus, you're not justified in his sight, you're not forgiven of your sin, you don't have new life, you're not one of his. If you would be saved this morning, the first thing you must do is let yourself be saved and stop trying to save yourself. You are drowning in the ocean of your sin. Jesus is the lifeguard who has swum out to you and is ready to take you in, your, in his strong arms and carry you safely to shore, but he's waiting, waiting for you to stop your wild thrashing about in your vain attempts to try to keep yourself afloat and simply to go limp and just fall into his arms. And that's what I call you to do this morning. That's what this text 
calls you to do this morning. And it's only when you've done that, when you have released all efforts to try to save yourself and you have banked your everlasting hope of forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life on Christ and him alone that you can actually stop your boasting and give all praise and glory to God. Allow yourself to be saved by Christ. And he will.